Hello and welcome to the Editor's Podcast for the October 2022 edition of Practical Neurology. We're the two co-editors of the journal, Phil Smith and Geraint Fuller, and it's a pleasure to introduce the 110-page edition, which is uh, the October issue, of many people's favourite neurology journal. Geraint, we were chatting beforehand about how best to read the journal. Is it from beginning to end, picking out the best bits? Are there more strategic ways of reading the journal? Well, obviously, um, we're always keen that our readers start at the beginning and slowly go through. And and obviously, they they will realise that that's the way we've intended them to read it. We recognise, however, that um, life isn't perfect and people often approach things differently. And I think it's quite interesting to think about how we read different articles, because there are some articles which actually you wouldn't necessarily go back to. So there are some things where you'll search for a particular topic and you'll try and you'll see a difficult problem and you'll gen up on it because you think, well, this is something I need to know about. And you might go back and search for that sort of thing. But we've got quite a lot of different articles um, and indeed we're going to be discussing a number of them today where actually you need to read them to sort of get the flavour uh, if you're an experienced um, clinician, you may think, oh, this is reminding me of useful things. Oh, yes, I, I remember I knew that. Or if you're um, something of a tyro, if you're just starting out, you're hopefully picking up the approach of a senior and a clinically expert colleague in an attempt to try and make sense of the problem. And and I think that spectrum is is what we've got, you know, things that you, we should expect our audience to graze on or things that we're expecting to come back and check. I think um, articles fall into those sort of different camps. Yeah, so it's still acceptable, presumably, with the BMJ to turn to the obituaries first of all. That's often what people do. Then Minerva and personal view, etc. And if they've got any energy left, there might be a bit of time for looking at the research. But uh, different for practical neurology. Quite different. We don't have an obituary page, so we don't have to check if we're still alive before we start reading. Okay, people know that we're alive, at least for for the podcast anyway. So, Garrett, we're, we're going to start with our editor's choice, and what a choice it is. This is uh, Weakness in the ITU. It's by John Walters from uh, Swansea, and you've had the pleasure, I think, of reading this first. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, of the different categories, I think this is one of those uh, articles that you would hope that people are just going to read rather than go back and search because it's full of lots of useful tips and lots of things to help you approach um, a problem which is not that uncommon. I mean, we'll almost any consultation in ITU will have a question of, about weakness. Obviously, some patients will be asked to, to see just because of their weakness. But if you're seeing anyone on ITU, it's probably worth reading this and going through it and just reminding yourself of the different approaches that you can have. And I think Equally, when you've seen someone, it probably wouldn't be a bad thing to search and come back and just check you've not missed anything. But I think that the secret here is probably to get the background. And what John John does is is he really shares his experience and thoughts on the whole process. And you know, obviously, immediately you think of weakness on IT, you think of neuromuscular weakness, you think of Guillain-Barré syndrome. And John gives a very nice series of discussions about how to make the diagnosis, what you would expect the things you you would worry about, the observation that, for example, neck flexion uh, is innovated by the same muscles, the same radicular groups that uh, respiratory muscles to the diaphragm. So, you know, it's a useful predictor as to what's going on. And broadly speaking, how confident you can be of the diagnosis, but also how to assess respiratory weakness, how to anticipate someone's going to need ITU. He goes through some very simple 
bedside testing of respiratory function, and then equally what you do once you get there. So I think that from the Guillain-Barre syndrome, hopefully people are going to see it as a revision, but it's full of some nice observations and some useful clinical points. Yeah, I mean, he, he's such a uh, complete clinician, really, I suppose, and we're, we're uh, benefiting from his long experience. But you know, I think we can probably all perhaps admit to when we're getting that call from the ITU, we have a slight frisson of anxiety because uh, it is an intimidating place to go. It, you have a slight bit of imposter syndrome. You you uh, know that the patient's going to be uh, full of tubes, maybe one down their trachea as well. There are going to be machines that go ping. There's uh, lots of sedation on board and muscle relaxants and uh, the patient may even be locked in and um, and you don't get any history and there may be a meaningless examination. And then, you know, you're, you're surrounded by these very highly qualified nurses and consultants and so forth. And you're expected to come up with some uh, meaningful answer. And John, I think, helps us to formulate our questions and to come up with some sensible ways of approaching this very difficult situation. So it really is a a cracking paper, I think, and uh, all through it it comes his experience. It works really, really well as a practical paper. Yeah. Coming back to the intensive care unit, the figure two is a very nice little sign which has the words intensive care unit, but the word care is in a much larger font because that's uh, how you should uh, be approaching the, the patients on this. He obviously then talks about myasthenia and then a number of things that mimic it, botulism, porphyria, diphtheria, all the things uh, you might want to worry about. And I think then he has a very useful section where he talks about chronic diseases which decompensate. And I think this is something which often can catch you out. Um, I think most of us have probably seen a patient with myotonic dystrophy who hadn't been diagnosed until they've had some sort of orthopedic procedure, which has led to them being intubated and suddenly they're on ITU and no one can quite work out why they won't get better. And obviously myotonic dystrophy is a relatively common myopathy, but he provides a large and fairly detailed discussion of the other myopathies that can sometimes catch you out in a similar kind of way. I think that's the section of the paper I would go back and check because it's got lots of detail that you wouldn't necessarily need to carry around in your head about those that group of patients, even if you've then got the concept. Yeah, and there's, there's some really nice sort of personal touches as well. He, uh, to quote him, he says, I remember a polished, persuasive neurologist explaining to a captivated, though initially sceptical audience that an ITU surgical patient had, mis- had uh, acute intermittent porphyria. So I just imagine John actually making this diagnosis, but it would be done in a very modest, unassuming way. And he might just, uh, say, you know, after careful examination and history, he, he would say, well, I wonder if it could be rose a Dorfman syndrome or something like this uh, but uh, you know it, and, and would be right of course so I think that those little um, bits of autobiography coming through in the, in the paper make it very very readable. And I think the, there's also quite a lot of stuff about the other things that you get asked for which is obviously the ITU neuropathies and myopathies how to distinguish between them how to manage them how to try and avoid them in ITU so I think those are very useful things to think about and Hopefully, uh, when people read it, they'll be relatively refreshed that they feel they're familiar with much of it. But I think they'll still have learned quite a lot just by going through uh, the process of reading it. So this is one to read and maybe search for. But um, I, I think the grazing approach to the journal will be the appropriate way to get to this paper. 
Yeah, and, and maybe also via the other podcast, because uh, we will have Amy Ross Russell talking to John Walters, because this is the Editor's Choice paper, and so a separate podcast in a couple of weeks' time on, on this topic. So, Phil, the next paper, which is uh, MS and the Risk of Infection, an Association of British Neurologists Consensus Guidelines, so something that will be free online, which has been written by a range of, of eminent authors. Um, the list is actually very long, but Marika Kashi is the lead author. And, uh, Phil, is this one to graze or to reference? This one is for those neurologists who specialize in MS, really to feast upon, and is for the remaining 80% of the neurology population to uh, know about and to have read through in case they come across cases of MS. But increasingly, of course, with the advent of disease-modifying therapies, uh, MS has become a super-specialist domain and most neurologists are not dealing with these uh, uh, cases quite so much and uh, you know for the majority of neurologists of which I'm uh, one of those we have trouble with tongue twisters like ocrelizumab and uh, natalizumab and uh, those sometimes which are both difficult to spell as well as pronounce like ofotumumab which has more use than expected in it when you spell it out so this is about infection and multiple sclerosis and uh, it's uh, an ABN guideline it's been developed as consensus guidelines by the Delphi approach of a group of expert neurologists uh, drawing up quite extensive guidelines at the end and of course the the background to this is that infections may be involved in the pathogenesis of MS Epstein-Barr virus in particular that infections such as urinary tract infection uh, may well occur in people with MS they're more common and they are the leading cause the respiratory infection is the leading cause of death in MS. But most importantly, people taking disease-modifying therapies are vulnerable to opportunistic infections, and that's what the majority of the, the paper is about. So I think that this is a, um, a, a really heavyweight paper, actually. That there's so much in it, and it's uh, uh, really up to speed, up to date as well. It's got um, a very interesting paragraph about COVID-19, in fact, because people with MS and taking DMTs are more likely to get COVID and more severe infections as well, that um, there are more MS relapses during a COVID illness, it seems, and also... COVID vaccines appear less effective in those taking Fingolimod and maybe other DMTs as well. So it is smack up to date. It even harks back to a recent paper, December 2020, when we had Ruth Dobson talking about uh, uh, vaccination and MS. It, it rehearses some of that as well and updates us that we should avoid live attenuated vaccines in such as MMR and varicella and uh, yellow fever in people who, you know, who are on or just about to start maintenance immunosuppression, including steroids, actually. So it, this is a, a service to neurology. It will, it will be on my shelf. I won't read it very often, but I'm, I'm delighted that we have it because there are many uh, patients who will greatly benefit through their specialists knowing much more about this. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I think you've introduced a new category. We have grazing and feasting all of a sudden. I, I think what's nice here is that they've brought together um, and attempted to evidence-base as far as possible all the various different agents. And, and actually, it's, there's quite a complicated range of different things you need to think about for different uh, drugs. And obviously, this 
should make it easier for people to be sure they're doing the right thing. And so hopefully they'll find that helpful. Yeah, because, I mean, at the end, the, the guidelines, uh, there are 40 major paragraphs of the guidelines and some subparagraphs as well. I mean, th this is such a comprehensive document. I think we'll will not want anything like this for 20 years or so. Th this, I think, will will uh, stand the test of time. It's uh, very, very helpful indeed. I I, I'm more optimistic. I, I feel confident the range of drugs that we have in 20 years is going to be utterly radically different from where we are at the moment. I, I fear you may be, may be right, actually, but I, I will still not be an MS specialist even then. <laughs> but however, we're coming to um, a paper where uh, I do have a bit of experience actually. This is um, MDTs, Multidisciplinary Team Meetings, the Epilepsy Experience. And this is by John Duncan, who is um, a true heavyweight in uh, epilepsy experience. And John Duncan at Queen Square. So Garrett, you've been having a, a look at this paper. This is really, again, I think probably grazing rather than referencing. The idea is that you should, you know, where we asked John to write this, to share his experience. Obviously, his experience has been through the whole process of developing MDTs because this is something that, that wasn't there in the past. And, and now people talk about it with huge familiarity. And, and yet, clearly, there's been a development. And, and John talks us through the history of the epilepsy MDT at Queen Square, the different contributors people giving the history, the psychologists, uh, the EEGs, the neurosurgeons, and and broadly speaking, how those uh, patient, uh, those physicians can all lead to to try and help with the best advice in terms of uh, inter intervention for a patient. And I think um, he recognises the difficulty, the fact that you've got inevitably outsiders who won't necessarily know the patient as uh, well as uh, other clinicians, and you're shaping advice for a patient, a patient's treatment to be delivered by a clinician. So you're, you're aiming to try and uh, put the best things together to, broadly speaking, as a team, come up with the best plan. There's quite a, a complicated, but I think quite helpful analogy he draws towards the end. He compares it to a helicopter rescue mission. Uh, the neurologists present the problem. The MDT determines if it is possible to design a mission that can achieve a good result, for example, to, to rescue an injured climber uh, stuck on a precipice. First, the location and surroundings must be verified. Second, uh, is it possible to plan a flight to be able to do this, which he holds as a surgical approach? And thirdly, if they were able to rescue the, the climbers, what's the risk of a crash to the town below or the eloquent cortex or the white matter tracts? In this analogy, uh, the overall mission planning is for the MDT, and it's the surgeon is the pilot who has to actually undergo it. And, so, and I think it's quite a nice way to capture what's obviously quite a complicated series of decisions. And I think one of the things that, that struck us is that the epilepsy MDTs, particularly in the large centre, is, is perhaps where MDTs have started. You mentioned uh, when we've discussed MS, and MS treatments have clearly helped by a, an MDT approach to try and make sure you're, you're giving people the, the best agent and looking at the pros and cons and so on. But actually, I think we're all moving towards a situation where many patients benefit from MDT discussion. And we have to think about how to try and construct them. And, and whilst the model given in the neurosurgery focused epilepsy MDT is has much to learn, clearly lots of other models are going to require a different organization to reflect the nature of the 
the, the interaction. So I think I think this is a theme we're going to return to because we think there's much that we can learn from different specialties. Yeah, I mean, the MDTs keep cropping up in everything, you know, in every podcast as well. But I think what I really, really like about this paper is that it is based on experience and John did not have to look anything up in order to write this paper. I mean, this, this is absolutely his core business. He's doing this all of the time. We asked him to write about what he does with his MDT, and he's done that. And uh, that's exactly the brief that we want from our authors. He did the same with his MRI protocol for epilepsy. Again, he didn't have to look it up. It's what he does every day. So that's the sort of thing we want from our papers. He was in on the setting up of the MDT in epilepsy at the National Hospital, having learnt uh, his skills at the feet of John Oxbury in Oxford uh, as a trainee. So he's really evolved this process and uh, it has changed. It's changed not least with the documentation that is now digital, etc. But, um, you know, it's working really well, but clearly needs um, uh, constant refining. MDTs should be used more widely still. We talk about the the epilepsy one is particularly complicated, might take uh, 45, 60 minutes to discuss a single case, whereas the neuro-oncology MDT, we whiz through cases in a couple of minutes each maybe. But in in neurology, we can think, well, situations like idiopathic intracranial hypertension greatly need the benefit of uh, a neurologist, an ophthalmologist, a neurosurgeon, maybe also a dietitian and psychologist, all thinking about the same case in real time and uh, you know there, there are other similar situations the things I learned probably is the importance of documentation and that is stressed greatly in the report to adhere to set proformas and uh, to make it systematic and then at the end John also mentions about the debrief if things go wrong not to bury them far from it really but when things go wrong with the surgery to bring it back and uh, have an open discussion again about why things might have gone wrong and change things for the better in the future so I think that it it works very well it's a very very practical paper and uh, it's adaptable to to other situations. And the idea of a a team-based approach is actually very germane to the next paper we're going to discuss, which is the end-of-life care of people with long-term neurological conditions uh, that comes from Krishnan there, Mark Lee, Esther Hobson, uh, David Oliver, and Nema Husbands. And I think you're going to discuss this end-of-life care. Yeah, thank you. So uh, this is a paper where... I think it's it's of generic interest to all neurologists and many other physicians as well. It's badges as a how to do it, and it is it is indeed exactly that. It's something that is core to all of our neurological practice. I mean, we might think of palliative care as being the care of death and dying, but it's also about the supporting and improving quality of life through planning, through symptoms management, etc., It's based on the cancer experience, but um, to adapt it to neurological conditions is really very important because the same principles will apply. The trouble with neurological conditions, though, that they vary very widely and the time course is also very variable, thinking of MND, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, etc. And it's difficult sometimes to know when to introduce the idea of end of life 
when to start those discussions. But I think the whole thrust of this paper is to start early, and particularly in those where cognition is threatened later on in the evolution of the illness, because patients themselves may be quite nervous about raising it and family equally nervous. And if the clinician is nervous as well, then it will those things will be left unsaid. So we have to be a bit proactive about this and uh, maybe start the conversations before the so-called end of life, which is the expected last year of life, before it seems comfortable to do so, in other words. Um, they, they say, well, when is end of life? Well, there is a, there's a thing called the surprise question. Would I be surprised if this person died in the next six to 12 months? And if the answer is no, I would not be surprised, then that is the time to start raising some of these issues. They present something called the REMAP model, which is just uh, an acronym to help us remember the things to cover during our discussion. And I found that quite helpful. But we must think really of uh, the need for advanced care planning. I mean, so often people have not expressed their wish about how they want their situation handled were the worst to happen. And the it's a very difficult job for relatives around them to project into their mind and say, well, what would they have wanted at this stage if they could see themselves now in this situation? So advanced care planning, really very, very important. And trying to understand individual priorities, particularly those around hospital admission. Uh, and perhaps something that I'd neglected to think of myself as well was the concerns about spiritual needs, uh, which are really very, very important for some people. And we, we must not forget. It, you know, so, so it ties in quite well with, a, with one that we featured 12 years ago, uh, 10 years ago, Leslie's Story, which was uh, in 2012. We, we published that by some of the same authors, actually. So um, this is an ongoing issue that neurologists need to know more about, need to be more aware of, need to be more proactive. Thank you, Phil. And, and I would agree. One of the, the points they make is that it's not just a one-way ticket that, you know, neurology passes a baton to palliative care. There'll be issues when perhaps you should involve palliative care during the middle phase of uh, someone's illness to, to talk about things and explore the different options. And then, obviously, it isn't a, a complete transfer of care in the latter phase. Uh, you need to work as a team and uh, have conversations. And I think you need a good relationship with your palliative care team. Yeah, and in the ideal situation, you might even have someone who is referred to palliative care and then discharged from palliative care because they're referred at an appropriate time for a brief targeted intervention, uh, you know, breathlessness, drooling, constipation, etc. And, and some remediable symptom is dealt with. And it's not necessarily only that palliative care doctors want to see people at the end stage only. Throughout the paper, it mentions MDTs again. You know, we're there alongside palliative care doctors and it's uh, a joint approach, including the GP, I think, as well. So close collaboration between different specialties is the way forward for so many situations. So an another compulsory read for all the, uh, the neurologists. And indeed, yeah. I, I think it's, it's compulsory, this one, yeah. I, I think that this is um, one that's going to enter all of our practice and should have done so more until now. And it's something just a reminder, really, that it, for the best interest of the patient, we need to be having what might for us be uncomfortable conversations earlier in the disease course. 
So should we should we move on to uh, this uh, next one, which is a another heavyweight paper? Actually, it's a case report, but it runs to thirteen pages, and it's uh, Rosa Dorfman syndrome. It's written by uh, the group from Queen Square, mainly headed by Mary Riley. I think that this does show what can be done with a case report. It, it, it is, it is uh, beautiful and comprehensive. But, uh, Garrett, you get first go at this. Thank you, Phil. So I, um, I mean, the truth of the matter is, of course, this isn't really a, a case report. It's a review. And what they've done is, uh, the, the title is The Neurology of Histiocytoses. And there's a very detailed description of, obviously, a very complicated and uh, rather challenging presentation in a patient who ultimately they were able to help. By going into the case in, in quite a lot of detail, it does show up really quite how challenging the diagnosis is. And I, and I think what's really quite useful uh, in their discussion is that these, these disorders, the histiocytosis, are one of those conditions which is just a little bit different from what we would normally expect. It, a lot of the time, it sort of seems to behave a bit like an inflammatory condition, and then it sort of seems to behave a bit like a lymphoma, and yet it's different from these things. And you can get a, a good steroid response, and you think, oh, it's down to the steroids. You can get a scan that looks like a lymphoma with deposits and so on. But I think the, the key thing is to recognize that you've got a different group of conditions that behave in this sort of pseudo malignant way. Um, they can be associated with a clonal disturbance because there's a genetic basis to them. But you, you've got this very challenging uh, spectrum. Now, uh, the Rosa Dorfman is actually the least common of the three sorts, the commonest being Langhans cell histiocytosis. And the commonest versions for Langhans anodaheim chester is, is pr very prominent involvement of the pituitary. And there you can get uh, changes on the scan and uh, you, you, you find uh, systemic changes elsewhere very often, particularly in the long bones and so on. But it, it doesn't necessarily always follow that course, and you can have sort of multicentric disease. And ultimately, you need to think about it in these challenging patients. And very often, you'll need to do a PET scan, because very often that allows you to find the sites of pathology, um, which can be pretty much anywhere. Um, obviously, in the nervous system, it can be in the nerves or adjacent to the nerves, as in this patient, or uh, in the meninges around the pituitary, as I've mentioned. And then you're going to need to do a biopsy, and often you'll need to do more than one biopsy. And when you've got the biopsy, it can be hard to report, and you're going to need to have genetic mutation analysis to help understand which kind of histiocytosis you're dealing with. And in fact, there's a, a national histiocytosis panel uh, if you've ever had a patient who's involved, they're incredibly helpful and will steer you through. And then broadly speaking, if they have some of the more specific mutations, they can tailor the range of treatments really quite uh, dramatically. There's quite a long list of drugs that have been trialed um, to produce very effective, specific treatment. So I think it's one of those papers which has got lots and lots of details. And what I'm anticipating is that it probably makes sense to read it to get the flavor but actually, probably, if you've got a patient you're worried about, you think may have this, then it's worthwhile to come back and then obviously read it much more critically with the questions to try and link it to your case. Yeah, and it's, it's also one of that long list of conditions that we've probably seen but uh, not secured the diagnosis because it uh, presents in a uh, multi-system way and uh, it's something that um, we perhaps used to get away with missing but now we must not miss it because once you've done the genetic markers etc there are very specific treatments each of them ending in MAB they've got long names but uh, we need to know that this is a condition 
physician to diagnose, to biopsy, to get the genetics and to sort out what specific treatment uh, is required. And I'm noting actually, uh, Garen, that uh, practical neurology doesn't encourage eponyms and yet uh, we've got three cracking eponyms here. In fact, one that used to be not an eponym, used to be histiocytosis X, has now become Langerhans histiocytosis. We got Erdheim Chester and presumably had that uh, for years. And then Rosa Dorfman used to be called adenosis with lipid excess or sinus histiocytosis with massive lymphadenopathy. I think we can see why we stick with Rosa Dorfman, actually. It is just that little bit simpler. So I learned a lot through reading this, and uh, it, it's really up to date, up to speed again. Uh, there's a collaboration of this group um, with London and uh, Australia, and uh, this is um, taking us to the cutting edge, I think, where um, genetic markers are really uh, helpful to determine which of the immunomodulation treatments will be, uh, will be the most helpful. And Phil, I think your, your lack of enthusiasm for eponyms perhaps belies the fact that, that what one needs to be thinking about here is the histiocytosis. So actually, to, to, I think there's a case for lumping because whilst they're syndromically different, there is overlap. So I think the key question is you need to think, could it be histiocytosis? And broadly speaking, if you're thinking, could it be sarcoid? Could it be lymphoma? Could it be you know some sort of uh, auto inflammatory condition. If, you, if you're going into those kind of thoughts, add histiocytosis to your diagnostic because you might be able to find a very treatable option. And then once you've got the pathology, once you've got the pathology, you can start going to the eponyms. Yeah, and you might be able to find a very good paper that describes it all, which Perfect. is uh, this is what, exactly what this is. I mean, that is a tour de force of a paper, I think, for, and badged as a case report. And so the final paper we were going to discuss was um, relating to not a condition that we won't remember, but one we will remember, but not quite remember how to test for. Uh, so over to you, Phil, for testing for syphilis. Testing for syphilis, indeed. So this is uh, the uh, mimic. This is the disease of kings. It, it is uh, that of syphilis, which we all thought rather like polio had disappeared. But um, it's actually on the increase now with the greater protection against uh, death from HIV. Perhaps um, the spread of venereal disease has increased. And uh, this um, condition now still remains often unrecognized, undiagnosed and untreated, but um, it is on the increase. And we thought we knew when we were training, didn't we, that uh, we knew how to test for syphilis. You just sent the test and uh, the lab came back, yes or no, they had syphilis. But it's a bit like the uh, reach for the Keppra, where you don't have to think. Sending for, for syphilis tests is complicated. And we need to know that the tests are perhaps surprisingly unreliable, indirect, uh, misleading, etc. So we need to know a bit about syphilis and a bit about the test. So neurologists will still encounter syphilis, usually at the secondary stage, occasionally the tertiary stage, and it can have ophthalmic manifestations, including uh, retinitis, optic neuritis, argyropis and pupil, etc. It can have meningeal manifestations, cranial nerve, particularly deafness, incidentally, important manifestation of this, but also stroke, of course, as is the example given in this paper. And in the later stages, dementia, tabes dorsalis. So the things to remember are whenever we test for syphilis, test also for HIV, and don't 
bother with a risk assessment. You don't have to justify doing this test anymore. It's highly treatable, as is HIV, and therefore you need to uh, know whether the patient has got it without all of the, the uh, caution that used to be there. The tests seem to be divided into those that are non-treponemal, in other words, not very specific ones, and this is founded on the old WR, but uh, later VDRL, but now, instead, the up-to-date version is the rapid plasmin reagent test, RPR. So it's not specific. It's um, got a lot of overlap with cardiolipin, and so you can get um, some false positives. But uh, in the CSF, the RPR has a sensitivity up to 80% and specificity up to 100%. So, so it, is, it is good. And then there are the treponemal tests, those actually looking something specific for treponemal pallidum. You can either measure IgM or IgG immunoassays, or you can do the hemagglutination, TPHA, or um, particle agglutination, TPPA. And these are sensitive and specific, but... The problem is that they are sensitive in the early second stage, but um, as time goes on, they become uh, less specific. So uh, there's some mention in the paper about treatment of syphilis as well, and we need to know about that. But uh, now I think this is a really helpful paper. It, it's uh, uh, written by Margaret Kingston and Michael Hemp from uh, Manchester. And um, I, th I think that this, this is something that we definitely need to read and read and be warned, really, that um, things are not as simple as perhaps we perceive them to be before. I, I, I read it as a, one of those papers which actually is reassuring because you feel that there's much that one's come across before. But that tricky thing where you get the result back and you think, does this mean this patient has had syphilis in the past that's been treated? It Does this mean we have active syphilis? How can we try and disentangle those things? It tries to help with that. But I think the other message, and it sort of echoes with some of the issues we've talked about before, is if you're not sure, talk to somebody. And it sounds like the GU physicians are very happy to talk about uh, interpreting the uh, syphilis serology to try and make sure that you you're doing the right thing and you're not over treating an old find an old treatment an old result and you're providing appropriate treatment when needed uh, so i think if there's a theme to our issue phil i think it's one of teamwork the idea that lots of these papers and lots of the the things and we didn't talk about it particularly in the histiocytosis paper but clearly that was the work of substantial number of different experts from different fields you had hematologists oncologists radiologists the neurologists and, and neurophysiologists so there's a large number of people all coming together to try and work out how to try and best manage a patient with a particular problem and and i think all the papers we've discussed have to one degree or another hinged on communication so that's a surprising finding. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, and actually on, on the syphilis point, I just wanted to uh, make the point about the, the specificity of these tests was put into stark contrast by a book I was reading recently where women in the 1930s and 40s, particularly in the States, were made to have a WR, a syphilis test, before marriage. And in about one in a thousand, it was positive even in someone who'd never had intercourse. And it's very, very stigmatising indeed to have a positive syphilis test. Uh, and it wrecked people's lives and it was still remaining positive after a course of penicillin, etc. These things are, are not specific, even today. You know, there are things like SLE, malaria, TB that uh, can give you a, a positive uh, test for syphilis. But it, it's mainly the, the issue of lupus. So it's... Uh, 
we, we live and learn, but even a century on, actually it was 1901 when the WR was first described, there are still many problems with um, the specificity of the tests that we have for us. So thank you for listening to the Practical Neurology podcast. And there are regular podcasts published. Some of the best content of the issue of the journal will be on there. And if you don't want to miss it, please encourage your friends to subscribe on their preferred platform, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, etc. And we'd like to hear from you as well um, if you feel you've got any feedback on the podcast or on the the journal. So uh, thank you very much, everyone. And we look forward to speaking to you again in a couple of months' time. I hope you enjoy reading the journal from cover to cover. Thank you very much indeed. Goodbye.